0: make our way to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verse 8 down through verse number uh, 17. Chapter 5, verse 8 down through verse number 17. And uh, so we're coming through this chapter as we're coming expositionally through the book. And uh, Solomon is going to take us into a subject of money and wealth and um, uh, acquiring it or really the love of money. Essentially, he's what he expounds upon. And uh, what he shows us really is, and that's the title of the message tonight, is that money is meaningless without God. Money is meaningless without God. So let's read our text, and then we'll dive into this together. Notice in verse 8, he says, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And as he came from his mother's wombs, he he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. When we look at this text, we see at the core of it is the, um, the topic or subject of wealth or money. And so, money is meaningless without God. That's our title, and that's what we see with this text. And really, when I think about that statement, money is meaningless. Just think about that statement for a moment. Money is meaningless. That sounds like an absurd statement, doesn't it? Nearly everything in life involves money in one way or another, or, or possessions, or, or, or whatever it is that we use to buy and sell, right? We work our jobs for the purpose of re- receiving a wage, and getting money. We don't work for free, do we? Uh, at least that's not the, not the trend. Most people, they don't want to do that. Uh, we work our jobs for that purpose, but uh, we need money for the purpose of paying our bills, right? We need money to uh, pay for our home, for our air conditioning, our light bill, our water. We need money to buy food, water, and clothes, and anything else that we need for our home and family. And so money, no matter what form of currency that may be, and that's varied throughout history, right, uh, we would operate in dollars today. There's been times where it's been just precious stones or metals. Uh, in ancient times, livestock was your currency, and uh, that was the, the, the gauge of your wealth. But money, no matter what form of currency it is, it's interwoven into our life. It is a great necessity to life. If you don't have any money at all, it's going to be near impossible to live. You have to be able to uh, purchase and take care of your needs, right? Now... Looking at our world, we can see this necessity, and it is true, it's a necessity. And while money has a specific purpose for life in this world, money really is vain without viewing it and using it in the right way. And the right way to view and use money is through the lens of God's purposes and provisions in life. You see, the world around us views money and what money can buy as a means to what? as a means to happiness, as a means to satisfaction, as a means to fulfillment for their life. Now, a person may use great wealth to make them materially happy for a time, but they'll never really truly be satisfied with all the money and all the wealth that they can have. In fact, the more money a person has, you're going to find that often those people are the most miserable people in the world. Because they have it and they do not live with the right perspective and practices of God at the center of life and creation and the reason they have what they have. Now, this is what Solomon is communicating in this text. He concluded in the last section about the importance of fearing God in our worship, guarding our steps in worship, how we should handle vows and how we should be careful with that and making promises and commitments to God. But now he's transitioning into something that often takes our hearts away from worshiping God. That is money or wealth or possession uh, that we could maybe get in this world. Now, he's briefly already touched on this in uh, earlier chapters, but he dives into it in more detail now and shows us the vanity of pursuing wealth and money as the satisfaction for our life. Now, notice with me two points here tonight, and I'll, I'll try to break these down for you. Notice with me, number one, we see the problem for the poor is oppression. That's what we see in the first couple of verses here. The problem for the poor in this world is oppression. In life under the sun, this sin-cursed world where uh, sin reigns in the hearts of people and, and we see the evil acts of things in this world, uh, oppression comes upon the poor. And those in power, we find, oppress the poor in their greed. Those in power oppress the poor in their greed. Oppression comes from those who want more, those who think they're better or higher or can take advantage of others. You look at verse 8 and notice what he says. If you see, a province, if you see in a province or a kingdom the oppression of the poor. Now just pause there for a moment. He's, he's already mentioned the evil of oppression in chapter 4 and verse 1, hasn't he? We touched on it just briefly. But notice who is it that is being oppressed? Who is it that's in view here? It's the poor. You don't see the oppression of the rich. You see the oppression of the poor. Now, why are the poor the ones who are oppressed? Because the poor do not have the money or the wealth or the power to place them in a position where they're not oppressed. Because the oppressors are the ones who have a lot of wealth and have a lot of power and have position. That's what we see in our world. Those who oppress think that their wealth and power give them the right to bully those who are below them, to take advantage of them, and to use them for their own gain. But we know the Lord sees that as a gross evil, don't we? We know the Lord has compassion upon the poor. We know that the Lord gives instructions in His law concerning the poor. He knows, we know that He's going to bring justice upon those who oppress the poor. Solomon also wrote this in Proverbs 22, 22, and 23. He said, Do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. So you see whose side the Lord's on. He's not on the side of the oppressor, right? Uh, He's not in favor of them. But it's not only that the poor are robbed and oppressed of what little material they have, but Solomon also says in this text that they experience the violation of justice and righteousness. So the poor do not get fair treatment. The opportunity to have what is right done on their behalf is often stripped from them simply because those in power can do so. Those who are corrupt in the positions of justice. And this happens all the time in our world, right? Justice and righteousness have been forsaken in places where those should be foundational. You go backwards to chapter number 3 and verse 16, we Saw that, right? Solomon already wrote. He said, I saw under the sun in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. So that's the reality of things that happen in this world. And we should never be dull or careless regarding these things. But at the same time, what does Solomon say in this text? He says of this oppression and lack of justice and unrighteousness and robbing of the poor. He says... Do not be amazed at the matter. In other words, don't be shocked by that. Shouldn't surprise you at what's going on here. Why? Notice what he tells us in that verse. The high official is watched by a higher, and there is yet higher ones over them. What's he describing here? Basically a a hierarchy, a leveled uh, form of corrupt system, right? Layers of, of human power which which we would probably see it as, as governments. It may not have been this exact form of our day like it was back then, but the same principle applies in every generation of human beings. There's someone who's got power over another, and though that person has power over them, and little by little there's orders here and orders there and orders there, and there's a corrupt system in place, right? Corrupt layers in, in power, and we see that in our day. Our own government has its own layers of corruption and oppression, That shouldn't surprise us. As much as we love our our country, it ain't perfect. It's got a lot of corruption in it, especially in its government. Why should this not surprise us? Because unless positions of power are led by Christian people, who are they led by? They're led by depraved, sinful people, people bound to their sin, people who in their sin naturally look for opportunity to take advantage of others for the sake of increasing their own wealth and power. That's what we find. Now, what you'll find is that (coughs) much of church history shows that it has been Christians who have been (laughs) on the poor and oppressed side of things, hasn't it? All you got to do is read a little bit of church history and you'll see that. We've been persecuted and oppressed and, 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 and robbed by the governments of this world or the powers of this world. And so Peter wrote a similar truth to the Christians in 1 Peter 4.12. He said to them, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you. Now we think of that text and we may... Think of any fiery trial we experience, right? But for the Christians in that day, what was the fiery trial they were experiencing at that time? It was oppression and persecution. So Peter says, don't be surprised by this. Don't be surprised by this. Now, now So this is, this is good application for us. They were to know it's going to happen. This is part of what happens in the world. You come on down to verse 9 and Solomon says, but this gain for a land... This is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. And I read that verse, I thought, well, what in the world is he talking about there? Well, I'm not alone, because most Bible scholars throughout history have looked at this verse, and they still don't know exactly what it means. There's, a, there's an idea, to, idea here that we can gain from context, I think, but the original meaning of the Hebrew is somewhat cryptic, the original language. Because at, at first, it seems that Solomon says, okay, it's all right for oppression to exist. That's not what he's saying. In context, what he's saying is that he's not condoning oppression mentioned, but he's giving a general observation of a bigger picture of a land that's ruled by a king, albeit an oppressive king. While many kings have been oppressive, there is gain for that land in the sense that there is order and structure in the land. Orderly rule, even though it may be oppressive, it's better than anarchy and chaos. The king, as well as the poor, they are dependent upon uh, the, the fruit of the land. And, and so the poor have a role in that. The king has a role in that. And there is a system in place there by which both of them need the fruit of the land. So really, in the end, both the rich king and the poor servants are dependent on the same source for their sustenance and life. It really puts us all on an equal playing field, doesn't it? king's got to eat, the poor's got to eat, and guess where all food comes from? The land and God who gave it. Proverbs 22.2 two says, The rich and the poor meet together, the Lord's maker of them all. So with that in view, they are equal before God as their creator, thus showing the evil of oppression. But being in this position of poverty, okay, this is where we see the tie-in to money and wealth and pursuing it. Being in a position of poverty often is the spark that drives a person to want great wealth simply for the fact that they refuse to live in oppression anymore. Now, certainly, there is nothing wrong with seeking to better your life financially. But the motive and intent must be considered, as we'll see through this entire text. Notice with me, number two, I want you to see the pursuit of wealth is a deception. The pursuit of wealth is a deception. Now, I want to qualify this point by saying that wisely stewarding your income, wisely saving and investing is not wrong, all right? That is not a deception. But to do so in pursuit of true satisfaction of life is. If you think that accumulating more wealth and gaining more is what's going to satisfy you in life, you're greatly deceived. It's not. It's just not. So there's a few things that Solomon points out here about the deception of this person who pursues wealth in life under the sun as if that's what's going to satisfy him, that's what's going to complete his life. He says it real plainly. Letter A, firstly, wealth does not satisfy a person. He, He just outright says it in verse 10. Verse 10, he says, he who loves money will what? Not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Remember vanity, that Hebrew word, hevel, it's, it's like a breath. It just fades. It's empty. It's meaningless. It's nothing. So he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. He who loves wealth is not going to be satisfied with wealth. That's, it's a vanity. Now, the word's money here. It's also translated as silver or, or some kind of a material. And wealth they, are the, they were the medium of exchange. They were the wealth in the form of goods in that day and possessions. But Let's think about our world for a moment. How many in our world love money and possessions? How many, of our, how many in our world, we just look around our culture, how many, it's evident that they love money and possessions. Money and having wealth are a great idol in our world, especially our culture. Why is that? Because man naturally thinks that money is what's going to satisfy his life. If he just had more of it, or if he had just more toys, or or whatever it is that he could buy with that money, having more will somehow give him all the things he wants, and it's going to take away all his problems, right? You see, the love of money is so evident, we'd have to be blind not to see it in our world. But Solomon, you remember, he previously said in chapter 4 and verse 8 about the workaholic who's constantly seeking to gain. What did he say about him? Chapter 4, verse 8, he said his eyes are never satisfied with riches. He never comes to a point where he says, okay, this is enough, right? Anybody anybody heard of J.D. Rockefeller? J.D. Rockefeller was the world's richest man at one time in the past, and he was once asked by a reporter, he said, which million that you have earned was your favorite? His answer was, my next million, my next one. As many millions as he had, still wanting more, still wanting more, still wanting more. He was never satisfied, right? That's how it is with so many in this world. Riches only lead one to want more riches. People want more and more and more and think that having more is somehow going to satisfy them more. It's kind of a tongue twister there. Now, we easily can fall in the same trap. We easily can think that whatever we have is not enough. Yet there are millions of people in this world who long to have what you and I have right now that we take for granted. You realize that you're considered rich by many people in this world just if you have a meal every day, just if you have clothes on your back, if you've got water to drink. You, and yet we have so much more than that, right? Can you remember a time maybe when you longed to have what you have now, and now you have it and you're unsatisfied and you want more? that's the cycle of our human nature, right? How many times I think as a kid I longed for a special gift at Christmas. Christmas came around, I got that gift, and guess what? A month later, I'm done with it. It's all something else I want. Watch it in my kids today. They have a toy for 10 minutes. Like, oh, I want that one now. Just how the cycle goes with our nature. You see, this desire is woven into our nature to want more than what we have right now. Now, do you remember what temptation, how this temptation worked in the very beginning in the garden. You remember how Satan worked on the mind of Eve? What did he do? Not only did he deceive her in trying to make her doubt the word of God, but he convinced her that she needed more than what she already had in God. Satan said to her, Genesis 3, 5, he says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like who? God. You'll be like God. God knowing good and evil. So so Eve is sitting there thinking, wow, I can be better than what I am right now, the way that God has made me and what God has given me. You see, the sin of covetousness takes root, prompting man to want more and more. And that's why Jesus warned when he teaching his disciples. He said in Luke 12, 15, he said, take care and be on guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You see, it's not money or wealth that makes our life meaningful or satisfied. It is life in Christ that makes us satisfied and gives ultimate meaning to our life. We as Christians, we know that, right? The truth is, is that who you are in Christ is so much more than all the wealth of the world could ever offer you. You remember the beginning of our journey in Ephesians, how that glorious book opens up. Paul says in verse 3 of chapter 1, Blessed blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That exceeds everything else that you and I could ever imagine. What more could we need? And so for the Christian, we have a holy calling and responsibility Not to live this life under the sun, like the rest of the world, always wanting more and more and more and more. Our satisfaction is not found in those things. And if that becomes our life pursuit for satisfaction, we will put ourselves at odds with God. Matthew 6, 24. Jesus said this in context of treasuring up treasure in heaven. Rather than on earth, he said, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So the principle from Solomon here is real plain for us. The more you have, the more you're going to want. The more you have, the less you're going to be satisfied. But that's not all that pursuing wealth does with this wrong type of motive, with this wrong perspective, with God out of the picture. Letter B, not only does wealth not satisfy a person, wealth brings greater responsibilities to you. Brings greater responsibilities. Notice in verse 11, he says, When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? So with the increase of wealth and possession comes the increase of other needs that wealth obtains and maybe even taking care of others. You know, the super wealthy, what do they do usually when they get all their wealth? buy massive homes and big yachts, you know, you watch the NBA draft and all these young guys coming up, they're, you know, 19, 20, 21 years old, don't have a clue how to handle money, and they're given millions of dollars in their contracts, and what are the first thing they do? They go spend it all, right? They go, they go buy, buy houses and, and, and expensive cars and, and all sorts of things of that nature. They buy property. Who cares for that property? You think they do? No? What's that mean? they got to hire a landscaper, hire a gardener, hire a chef, hire a cleaner. All of these things build up, right? More people to feed, more people to pay for, more people to take care of. So, so, So there's more responsibilities to keep up with. Solomon knew all about that increase firsthand because he was very wealthy. Wealthy beyond really what we could imagine. And he had the oversight of the kingdom of Israel. Just to give you an illustration, I'm going to read 1 Kings 4, 22 through 28. I think I might have put 2 Kings in your notes, but I was double-checking my references, and I'm glad I did. It's 1 Kings instead of 2 Kings. Otherwise, I'd been telling you I messed up. And technically, I did mess up. I'm just glad I found my mistake. 1 Kings 4, you look at verse 22 through verse 28, listen to this. The wealth, just think about the wealth and responsibility that comes with it, with this kingdom management in Solomon. Solomon's provisions for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates from uh, Tifsa to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates, and he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safely, from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month. They let nothing be lacking. Barley also, and straw for the horses, and swift steeds, they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. If you really go through and break all of that down, it's just beyond really what we could fathom, all the responsibilities that come with all this wealth that he's overseeing. So the increase of responsibilities, you understand, the only advantage here is. This Solomon says is really that he gets to see this with his eyes, meaning I can look at all that and say, that's mine. That's really the advantage. That's really a pride thing, isn't it? But is it really worth it? I was reading one illustration. I'm not aware of this particular quarterback, but Bernie Kosar, who was he, he used to be a star quarterback in the NFL. He made tens of millions of dollars in his playing career, and yet he had to file for bankruptcy. A reporter asked him about this, and he revealed that there was a time during his life when he was paying 60 cell phone bills, when he only needed one for himself, but this is all the other people that he's caring for, taken care of. In addition to that, he ended up facing divorce, attorney fees, the IRS, former teammates needed his financial help, he went through an economic recession, and so forth. Needless to say, the increase of his wealth created greater responsibilities and challenges to his life. That leads to what Solomon says next. Letter C, wealth can increase life's problems. Not only responsibilities, but life's problems. Now, life has plenty of problems already, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Job said man that's born of woman is a few days and full of what? Trouble. All kinds of problems in life. Some think that if they just had more wealth and money... All those problems would disappear. That's the way our world thinks, right? You ever heard that saying, "More money, more problems"? It's true. A lot of truth in that. Look at verse twelve. Notice what Solomon says in our text: "Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep." Now, I don't know about you, but I can't stand a sleepless night. It's uncomfortable, it's no fun, right? We've probably all had them at some point or another. Maybe our mind wouldn't shut up or shut off or we're worried about something or we're just not feeling good. But Solomon says here that the one who works hard and the laborer, he sleeps well whether he eats little or much. Now, why does this laborer sleep well? Because he has worked hard and he is content with what he has. Whether he had a lot to eat or a little to eat, he's ready for a good night's rest. But in contrast, here's a contrast here, the other person is a rich man. And in his riches, he has a full stomach, but his full stomach keeps him sleepless. Why is it that he can't sleep? Well, maybe he ate too late. I know that if I get a full stomach late at night, I don't sleep very well. But I don't think that's the case. could be that he's unhealthy because he's so rich he does nothing. But more likely, he is sleepless because he is anxious about things concerning his wealth. He's anxious about losing his wealth, or he's anxious about the next big deal that will increase his wealth. His mind is on his money. And so you understand that the rich, they're always planning to get richer, always thinking about how to do so. So the rich man, he's kept up at night over his wealth, think of how to capitalize on the opportunity or worrying about losing it all. But the poor man who has little to lose, therefore he has little to fear losing. He sleeps fine. See, the problem of sleeplessness comes with the increase of wealth here. And there's another problem that comes into this picture. kind of ties together, really. Verse 13, notice what Solomon says. He says, there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, And those riches were lost in a bad venture. Now, here we see the reality, probably, of what kept this man up at night, coming to pass in his own life. He held on to his riches to his hurt. As a result of holding on to his riches, they caused him great pain. You understand that hoarding riches does not help you, it actually hurts you. Wealth is meant to be stewarded wisely, and generously. Now, this doesn't mean that the wealthy should just give everything away. That's not at all what he's talking about. But stewarding it to help others is a wise way to use it, especially if you're a Christian, right? Paul said to the Ephesian church in Acts 20, verse 35, he said, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, we know what the result of this man who chose to build new barns and hoard his wealth was. What was the result of his endeavor? We read Luke chapter number 12, verse 16 through 21 for a moment. And here's where Jesus, this is the, the, the latter part of where we see Jesus warned about not giving, guarding against all covetousness because your life does not consist in the possessions, right? But here he tells them this parable about the rich man. He says, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, verse 16, verse 17. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, those and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You see, the problem in this picture is this man he is acquiring wealth all for himself and not to do anything beneficial with it. He just wants to hoard it, right? And really, in hoarding it, what's he do? We find with this man in Solomon's case in this text, those riches were lost in a bad venture. That sounds like a big problem to me. Maybe the market collapsed. Maybe a recession hit. Maybe he had a bad business decision. Maybe he gambled it and lost it. A bad venture can happen to anyone. And here we find it happens to this rich man, causing him to lose it. You know, the uh, interesting statistic I read, too, is that within two years of leaving professional football, nearly 78% of players are bankrupt or are in financial distress after making millions. Some bad ventures are simply financial irresponsibility. Sometimes that's what it boils down to. But regardless, the point here is that if you treasure yourself and your riches and your wealth, you're not guaranteed you're going to keep it. Bad ventures happen. And that's what he's pointing out here. And as a result of this problem, it leads to another problem. They stack on top of each other. In verse 14b, notice he says, he read, we read, and he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. What's that mean? He has a family to provide for, and yet he has nothing to give them or to leave to them. Now, biblical principle of good stewardship is being able to leave an inheritance to your children, but not only to your children's children. Proverbs 13, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. So you see that it's not wrong to save and invest and to have money and wealth to give. It is wrong in how you use it and whether your heart is in it. So because his heart was set upon his own wealth, he brought great problems upon himself. And this really is the central, this is the central thing. It is the love of money, the love of wealth, that this is where your heart is, this is where your dependence is, this is where your satisfaction is. This is what Paul warned Timothy about, to tell them in his church, he said, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, this craving, this desire that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs or problems. So we see wealth, increased wealth, can bring, it can increase life's problems. But notice within the letter D, and this is kind of the icing on the cake for all that Solomon's writing here, regarding this love of money, wealth is never permanent. Wealth is never permanent. You notice about this rich man, his wealth, he lost it in a bad venture, it was not a true security because his wealth is not permanent. You know, Sometimes we look at our savings accounts or our retirement accounts, and we think, oh, that's, that's what I'm leaning on. Well, you know the market could crash, you could lose a lot of it. You might have a big emergency, and you have no choice but to use it. It's not guaranteed. It's not permanent, right? That's why we live day by day, right? Trust the Lord day by day. Verse 15, notice what he says. As he came from his mother's womb, speaking of this rich man, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Anybody ever seen a baby born? When they're born, they got a bundle of cash in their hand to pay the hospital bill. I wish. Man, baby deliveries are expensive. Anyone ever seen a hearse pulling a trailer of money? Valuable items behind it. Herses don't have hitches, do they? If they do, I don't know what for, but maybe someone out there has done that. We leave this world just as we came into it with nothing. Nothing. We've all read about and heard about in the news that tragic accident that happened with those that were in that sub going down to see the Titanic. You know you, had a, you know what the fee was to get on that boat or get on that sub? quarter of a million dollars. to go down there. Now, if you're a billionaire and a millionaire and you can afford that, that might be light money for you if you've got a lot of money to use. But here's the the tragic truth. I, I hate what happened to them, and I hate to see so many people using that as an occasion to make fun of them. It should not be that way. But not one of those millionaires or billionaires in that sub who died took one penny Not one. It's all left here and they're gone. They're gone. Money and wealth are not permanent. They leave us in one way or another. That's why Solomon says in Proverbs 23, 4 through 5, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle towards heaven flying like an evil towards heaven. That's how life works, especially once you had, have kids. All your money just goes out the window. You wonder, where'd it go? Diapers, wipes, all that sort of thing, toys, whatever. But it's not just kids. It's, it's everything else, doctor's appointments, groceries, everything. Money doesn't stay with us. It's meant to be used, right? And so with this in mind, Solomon says in verse 16, This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there with him who toils for the wind? What really is the gain of using your whole life to pursue wealth to no end? Like that's just all you're living for is to pursue wealth. What is the real gain there? Solomon says nothing. It's like trying to grab the wind. You can't hold on to it. Nobody's ever able to capture the wind. It's like Jesus said, Mark eight thirty six. for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And that's really what it boils down to. God created us in this life under the sun with a soul that will live beyond this life. A soul that will live beyond this life. So striving after money and wealth as if it's the meaning of life, that really is a waste of Chasing the wind, never satisfying the soul. And so, thus, Solomon says in verse 17, Moreover, all his days, this is the rich man, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Doesn't that sound like a happy guy? Not at all, not even close. He sits and eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. He's sick, he's lost it all. He, he looked, worked to acquire wealth and lost it all, and it makes him sick because that's what his life is wrapped up in. It's all about his wealth. That kind of person is miserable, even though he has had it all in the world. And this is why money truly is meaningless without God. It's empty. It's a tool in this world, but it's meaningless without God. And so this is Solomon's plain observation of life under the sun. He knew all about being rich and wealthy. He knew that it was empty without God. He will continue along this subject in our next text. It will come through chapter 6 and show us that true enjoyment ought to be had in God and what he provides us, the gifts that he gives us. But we must guard ourselves and not let ourselves be deceived by the culture around us that tells us that money and wealth is really what's going to satisfy us because it's not. We need to keep our hearts and minds fixed on the only source the only true source of satisfaction. And what is that source? That is Christ Jesus, our Lord. Christ is our satisfaction. He is what completes us. He is the one who ultimately takes care of us in all things. So I pray this study has been encouragement to you, and I've been encouraged and challenged by this text, and it's always a a good thing to to see. And Solomon just um, basically tackles many, many things in his evaluation of life under the sun. And so pray that'll benefit us in our own life